snapped. Franklin Graham came out with an email. Father, we come before you, Lord. We know, Lord, that your word tells us that you, you place rulers and leaders and people in authority in the positions that they are in, Father. It is all because of you. And we come before you now, Lord, lifting up our president to you. And though we may not always agree with what he does or how he does it, but or what he says, but we also acknowledge, Lord, that he is there because of you. There's no other way to explain how he was elected in the midst of all that was happening before. And we ask you now, Lord, to, to be with him in all the, the decisions that he has to make. We ask you, Lord, to provide him with a hedge of protection. He is getting attacked from all sides. But we also know, Lord, that he is standing up for godly principles. And for that, we are thankful, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for placing him in that position to be able to make those decisions. We ask you, Lord, to help him, to strengthen him, to help him to continue to make those tough decisions, decisions and direction that this country, no other president has wanted to go, but he has been willing to step up and start doing something about these things that have been lingering forever seems like forever and so once again Lord I just ask you Father that uh, you let no evil or harm come his way uh, help those who are uh, watching him and noting his every move that they would see Lord that you are behind it and that you are giving him some direction and guidance Lord in the decisions that he makes and we thank you for him, Lord, and thank you. Help us, Lord, to continue to pray for him every day like your word also tells us to do, to pray for our leaders. And uh, along those lines, we also want to lift up our governor to you, Lord. And like our president, we may not agree with some of the decisions and choices that she has made and some of the things that she is doing, but you have placed her there as well, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, to... Open up her eyes and her heart and her mind to receive from you, to be led by you, to be guided by you in all of the choices and decisions that she has to make. And we also ask her for a hedge of protection about her as well. Continue, Lord, with all of our state legislators and our mayor and the rest of the leaders throughout this country, Father, to, to first of all protect them. But even more importantly, Lord, to send your Holy Spirit to begin to lead them and guide them and help them to receive and to hear from you, Lord. And uh, I want to close with just praying for our nation. We, we have never seen such a rift as we have right now, such divisiveness, so such polarization. You're either on one extreme or the other. There is no middle ground anymore, it seems like. And Lord, we lift up our nation to you. We ask you, Lord, first of all, to forgive us for the way we have turned our backs on you, how we have uh, just let the morals of this country just degrade. We no longer have a God that comes into play when we are making choices and decisions that 
forgive us, Lord, for our attitude of anything goes, as long as we don't hurt anybody else. We pray, Lord, and ask for your forgiveness. And we ask you, Lord, as we uh, lift up our country to you, that you would heal our land, Lord. Begin with us here in the church. Mm-hmm. Heal our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we would begin, first of all, to turn to you. And we ask, Lord, that it would spread from us to the rest of our, our city, our state, and our nation, Lord. We need you in our lives more than ever, Father. This country does, this world does. We also know, Lord, and stand on your word that tells us where evil abounds, that good will much more abound. And we see a lot of evil around us, Lord, and we are looking to you for this good to come from all of it as well, Lord, and through it all. We thank you, Lord, that you have placed us in this country, that we do have the freedom and the choices that we are able to make. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to make the correct decisions and right choices and stand by our leaders. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Michael. Okay, guys. So uh, I've been assigned the task of the hard scriptures. (laughs) So uh, it's it's an R-rated service. Uh, So if you uh, are concerned about your children, they accept teenagers in the children's church. Um, so last week, we were talking about rape, incest, and sexual abuse. And uh, last week, uh, tough message, uh, but, you know, God is good. And that message is online. If you, ha- if you weren't here last week or you missed that message, uh, I encourage you to listen to that. You know, I've been doing this for 20, over, over 20 years and uh, these two weeks have probably been the hardest two messages I've ever had to share. And, uh, but God has been, you know, good to me and hopefully good to you in that hearing these messages, hearing the Word of God and understanding that there is freedom for those that have been taken captive, held captive by the enemy, by deep, dark secrets of our past uh, that have come from rape and incest and sexual abuse. So this morning, before I get into the Word, I've got a video that I want to show, a good video, then I'll come up and share some scriptures, and uh, then after the service, we can get on with more fun things, but we'll, uh, we got the picnic, but uh, you know, this is, this is good stuff, and you know, whether it applies to you, I guarantee you it applies to somebody that, that you know, somebody in your family, I mean, we said last week, one in three women have been sexually abused, raped, uh, or uh, experienced some form of incest, and one in six young men. So, uh, I mean, this is a huge problem, and uh, I heard someone say that when, uh, it was actually Josh McDowell, who, who I've got some testimony from that I'll share with you in just a moment, but he was saying that as he began to share his story, that pastors Different pastors were saying, you don't talk about this stuff in the church. Let me just say, if you don't talk about this in the church, where do you talk about it? Where do you find healing for these things? You know, only Jesus can heal us. So let's watch the video, and then I'll come back and share some closing thoughts. It's very unpredictable, although the movement 
is chaotic and severe. If you throw it right, it's a beautiful thing. And that's how I view my life. For Dickie, at 37, life has been chaotic and severe. Even now, the memories are painfully vivid. For decades, the darkness that consumed him could not be lifted. Although I was victimized, I felt like I played a part in it somehow. And all the while, you know, you've got, at eight years old, you start having demons that start haunting you from early on, you know, and they continue to do their work over the course of your life. Growing up in Nashville, Robert Allen Dickey loved playing catch with his father. But by 1983, when he was eight, Dickey's parents had split up. His father had moved out, and his mother was sinking into alcoholism. One night that summer, a 13-year-old girl babysits. Alone together in a bedroom, she tells Dickey to take off his clothes. What did she do to you? Um... She, she took off uh, articles of her clothing and, you know, she, she told me to get in the bed and then it was, uh, and then, then I, it kind of goes dark. I remember what it smelled like to be that close to another human being and being in places that were dark and, and it just uh, confused, incredibly confusing. Over the course of the next few months, Dickey says he was repeatedly molested by the babysitter. Why didn't you say anything? Fear. I think fear is the emotion that gripped me most. You just fear like in some way it's, it was your fault or, you know, you're going to be alienated because of it. You know, you're not going to be loved because of it. I felt like less of a human being is what it comes down to. I felt like less of a human. And that's hard to feel like that. When you're eight years old. Yeah, eight. Yeah, yeah, eight years old. It was also during the summer of 1983 that Dickie spent a day out in the country. Playing ball near a shed on his grandparents' property, he was approached by a teenage boy. My first thought was, oh, you know, I'll throw him the ball, you know. And he took me behind that dilapidated shed. And I just remember him undoing his belt and unzipping his pants and, you know, holding me down. And, you know, I, and I do remember maybe yelping or saying something. But, I mean, I was in the backyard and there was some land there. I mean, I don't, obviously no one heard. And I just closed my eyes and I remember probing and, and parts of the body that I could I could identify, you know, touching me and, and, you know, like trying to penetrate. And I knew right when it was happening that I would never utter a word of it. And I knew I had a place to put it and stuff it away. When you think about that eight-year-old boy out there, you know, in the country, what happened to him? Well, what would you want to tell him now if you could? If I could go back, I don't know if I'd want to tell him anything. I think I just want to hold him, you know, and say, it's going to be all right, you know. It's, 
I think I just want to sit with him. I certainly know that in that moment, what I had hoped for, and it was for somebody to come and, and just hold me and say, you're not damaged. You know, it's awful what's happened, and we're going to get through it, and it's okay to talk about it. And, you know, I mean, you don't think about vengeance. You don't think about retribution. You don't think about, you think about, how can I be healed from this? How can I, how can I get to the other side of this? To fill the void he was feeling at his core, Dickey immersed himself in sports. In high school in Nashville, he was a star quarterback and pitcher. In college at the University of Tennessee, he focused on baseball and was named an All-American. Dickey goes 11 innings for the win! In the summer of 1996, he pitched for Team USA at the Atlanta Olympics. He was also expecting to be selected in the baseball entry draft. His plan was to spend some of his bonus on an engagement ring for his high school sweetheart, Anne. There's a lot of hope put in that draft, especially when he had done so well and you know, you're seeing your buddies get their million dollars and he was really excited kind of on cruise control at that time like why wouldn't it work out in the draft's first round the Texas Rangers selected Dickey 18th overall they offered him an $810,000 signing bonus but a routine physical raised concerns about Dickey's elbow and he was sent to see renowned orthopedist James Andrews when the MRI was done it, it didn't show and all the collateral ligament. In other words, the ligament didn't show up. Of course, when you throw a baseball, that's where the stress goes. It's the main key to the elbow in the throwing act. Andrews had never seen anything like it. Either Dickey had been born without an ulnar ligament, or long ago it had atrophied and disintegrated. The Rangers rescinded their offer. The analogy that I sometimes give is it's like winning the lottery and, and losing the ticket. I'd spent a lifetime dealing with a, with, with a feeling of, of feeling like I was damaged. And here I was actually being called damaged goods, you know. Um, and there was a, it was a metaphor for other parts of my life that I was never, you know, revealing to anybody. Eventually, the Rangers would make Dickey an offer for only $75,000. He took it. Then he embarked on a baseball odyssey that would see him spend most of the next 12 years in the minors. Together, he and Ann, who had become his wife, just scraped by as they built a family. There definitely is a pattern throughout his career of, oh, looks good, oh, crash, oh, it looks good, oh, disappointment. By 2005, when he was 30, Dickey had lost so much of the velocity on his fastball that his future as a pitcher, it seemed, was all in the past. His only hope was a pitch that he threw only occasionally, a pitch the Rangers called The Thing. Well, we decided as an organization that, you know, R.A. as a conventional pitcher is probably not going to be making it back to the big leagues. But then we talked about we have an idea, and the idea is we'd love for you to become a knuckleball pitcher. We'd love for you to take a shot. Dickey committed himself to throwing the knuckler. And in 2006, the Rangers rewarded his commitment by naming him one of their starters. His debut in the rotation was historic, historically bad. 
On April 6th, in three and a third innings against the Detroit Tigers, he gave up six home runs, equaling the modern-day record. Back to the minors he went, again. I was tormented uh, and in a lot of pain because the one thing that I felt had given me a lot of my identity, I felt like was on the precipice of coming to an end. It was also at this time that Ann discovered R.A. was having an extramarital affair. She kicked him out of the house. I found out that he wasn't this man that I had put all this trust and hope in and everything that I thought was a certain way got ripped out from under my feet, you know, quickly. I hadn't shared it, you know, about the abuse with anybody and so I was in a real place where there wasn't, I didn't feel like there was much to look forward to. You know, I hated the broken human being I'd become. I hated the fact that I felt like I would put a certain face on in one place, but I was really somebody completely different. Now having reached his lowest point, Dickie decided to start seeing a psychotherapist. Soon, Anne took him back. Then, on a road trip to Omaha in June 2007, he decided the time was right to follow through on an idea he'd been drawn to for years. He would attempt to swim across the Missouri River. I was unhealthily looking for some validity um, and some way to feel like I, I was worth something. The current was so strong it forced Dickie to turn around midstream. It took all his strength to avoid drowning. I remember getting out and really wanting to embrace the mentality of how could I live in the moment well, whether it was on the baseball field, as a husband, as a father, as a human being, as a friend. Reborn in the river, a few months later, Dickie finally felt secure enough to reveal to his therapist the secret he'd kept for 24 years. There's a lot of tears that day. There was a lot of grief, a lot of anger. You know, he was angry with himself, he was angry with his God, he was angry, you know, with his, with his parents, he was angry with the abusers, a lot of anger in him. I'd been hiding the truth for so long and been dishonest about a lot of things, and so if I was going to live differently, then I, I needed to tell the truth. And there was just something more childlike, more playful, more um, uh, naive and genuine and sincere about him after that day. When I started to risk talking about uh, this stuff in my past, um, it freed me up to take risks as a professional. From 2007 through 2009, Dickey continued to develop his knuckleball, learning to trust it and throw it for strikes. At an age when most major leaguers are winding down their careers, Dickey was still growing. I would be myself with it. I would throw it harder. I would change speeds with it. And knowing that I had something to offer, the pitch, and had my own personality with the pitch, things started to turn the corner. The breakthrough came in 2010 when he joined the New York Mets. Struck him out. In his first season in New York, he was one of the most effective starting pitchers in the National League. He won 11 games with a 2.84 ERA. At 35, R.A. Dickey had arrived. R.A. Dickey has thrown a complete game of one-hit shutout. Over the last two full seasons, Dickey was 11th in the majors in ERA. He signed a two-year contract worth $7.8 million. 
This offseason, he continued his journey of healing. First by climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to raise funds to combat child sex trafficking. Then by publishing his brutally honest memoir, Wherever I Wind Up. Being sexually abused does not define who I am. And for a long time, it did, you know, and, and now it doesn't. From here, knuckleball. Nice. For Dickie, at 37, a father of four, life seems in some ways just to be beginning. Thanks to the knuckler, which puts almost no strain on a pitcher's arm, his major league career might be just beginning too. How does the pitch that you are mastering reflect the life that you're leading? It's been a journey that's been up and down and sideways, and but at the end of the day, I really have the hope that it's going to end up in the right place, like a well-thrown knuckleball. Yeah! So, you want to end up in the right place, you got to end up in the right place with Jesus, and that's where we're going to start, okay? That's a great story, great, great story. So, guys, uh, I wanna, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures uh, with you this morning. I'm going to start in uh, Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 19. And uh, if you have your Bible, I invite you to join me, or you can follow us on the screen or on your mobile device in um, before we just get any further let me just take a moment and pray father we uh we thank you for your word we thank you that life is found in your word that there's healing in your word and the bible says about your word that you will release your word and it will accomplish what you purpose we ask you father that this morning as the word goes forth that you will accomplish what you purpose father we ask that captives will be set free, that the broken will be healed, that salvation would come and life would come through the release of your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, so um, I want to start in Genesis, in um, Genesis chapter 19. The chapter before this, chapter 18, uh, if you are a Bible scholar, even if you're not, you'll remember that uh, Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent one day. He looks across the desert, and he sees three men that are coming to him. And uh, these three men show up, uh, promises made to Sarah about life, about having a child. But, um, but the father, it's, this is God the Father and two angels that show up at Abraham's door, and they say, God the Father says, show we hide from Abraham the thing that we are about to do. And so uh, they share with Abraham because the cry against Sodom and Gomorrah uh, because of their uh, sinful activity in that town that God had come to destroy the cities. And so Abraham, knowing that his nephew Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, was very concerned, and he begins to plead with God. You know, God, are you going to destroy the city if there are 50 righteous people there? And God says, no, I won't destroy it if there are 50. And then Abraham says, would you destroy it if there are 45? And God says, no, I won't. And, you know, he works his way to, you know, to 30, to 20, to 10. And it ends up that God says, if there are 10 righteous people in this city, in this large city, that he wouldn't destroy it. And so the father departs, the two angels depart, and they 
we pick up in chapter 19. It says, The two angels arrived at Sodom that evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. And I just need to say something about this, because we'll, we'll remember, if you know the story in Genesis about Abraham and, and Lot, how that uh, they had left the uh, land of uh, the Chaldees, and God had called them out to this land, to this promised land, and uh, so Abraham and his wife Sarah and Lot, and uh, they, they end up in the promised land. Both of them become very wealthy men, and uh, they had incredible herds. And uh, at one point, the herdsmen began to fight and argue, and there was strife um, between the herdsmen over either water or pasture land. And Abraham said to Lot, he said, look, you know, we love each other, and there shouldn't be this strife in our life. And he says... If you pick the left, I'll go to the right. If you pick the right, I'll go to the left. And so it says that Lot chose the area towards, towards Sodom and Gomorrah, this, this lush green valley land, and he decided to move that direction. And Abraham took what was that left over. But now we see Lot going from the land that was near Sodom and Gomorrah to it says that Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. And what that means is that Lot had become one of the judges. The, the gateway is where the judges would gather and, uh, you know, they would try cases and hear different arguments, and uh, he was like one of the leaders in the community. So he goes from the pasture land into the city and then becoming a leader in the city. And I would just say that the sin that happened in the city didn't just happen. Lot knew what he was getting into before he got there. Some of you will remember there was a, a verse in a song done by a musician many years ago, a guy by the name of Mylon Lefebvre. How many of you remember Mylon Lefebvre? Anybody remember him? Gosh, just a handful of you do. He's a pastor now, by the way, he pastors the church. But in one of the songs that he was singing, he was talking about sin, and he was saying, why was I flirting with a time bomb? I know what's right. And that's exactly what we see here with Lot. You know, getting closer and closer and closer to the sin. It says that Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city, and when he saw them, speaking about the two angels, and the Bible says in Hebrews that sometimes that we entertain angels. They come, they come into the form of men, mankind. It says, and when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he says, my lords, and he said, Please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, you can spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square, that would be the city square. And he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. And he prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. But before they had gone to bed, all of the men from every part of the city of Sodom both young and old, that's important to, un to understand, both young and old surrounded the house and they called out to Lot, where are the men, speaking about the two angels, that came to you tonight, bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. So what they were saying is that we're going to take these two men, these two guests that are in your house, you're going to bring them out and we are going to rape those men. The men of the city is saying that we are going to rape those two men that came to you. And that's why God said that I have seen the wicked, I've seen the evil that is in Sodom and Gomorrah, 
and if it's like I think it is and like I hear it is, I'm going to destroy the city. He says, um, bring them out that we may have sex with them. And Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Lot even understood that this was evil, that was a, a wicked thing. He says, look, and I'll, this next sentence I, just, I give up on. I have no idea why a man would say this about his daughters. Look, I have two daughters, have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you like with them. It's like, I, you know, I, I give up. What was Lot thinking? I mean, maybe he was thinking, you know, that it was going to be, he was just kind of, uh, uh, you know, calling their play. Maybe he's thinking they're homosexuals. They don't want to have sex with women anyway. Uh, nonetheless, that is not a thing to offer. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my, ro my roof. This is a, a traditional Mideast custom. How many of you saw the movie Lone Survivor? Remember the movie Lone Survivor, where he was taken into the, to this village, into this community, and, you know, the, um, the home that he was staying in, the guy was defending him because it was their, his reputation. Even when your enemy came in and you offered them a place in your house, you had to defend them and defend their rights. That was what was going on according to this Mideast culture. He says that, uh, don't do anything to the men that have come under the protection of my roof. He's, and the, the men of the city says, get out of the way. This fellow came here, speaking about Lot now, this fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge, and that's exactly what Lot was doing. He says, we'll treat you worse than them. We're going to do worse to you than we, we intended to do to them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moving forward to break the door down. It says, but the men inside, speaking about the two angels now, reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. And then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old with blindness, so they could not find the door. And the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here in the city, sons-in-laws or sons or daughters or anyone else in the city that belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against this people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were pledged to marry his daughters, and he said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But the sons-in-laws thought he was joking, just like a lot of people think today. There's a heaven, there's a hell. I don't believe that. That book was written so many years ago. How could you believe that? You know, it's an old story. Some of the translations said that they thought he was joking. Others said jesting or telling a fable or a, or a tale, a tall tale. It says, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. Reminds us of Noah, a preacher of righteousness, building an ark, others making fun of him. There's no rain in the land. He's building an ark in the desert. People mocking him, making, calling him a fool. What are you going to do with this boat? There's no place to float it. They said that until the first clap of thunder and the rain started falling, but at that point it was too late. God himself had shut the door. I'm going to tell you that God himself at some point is going to close the door on humanity and it will be over. That day it will be over. That's why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Don't put this off. Put, don't put this off. 
He says, and so it says that when he hesitated, the men, Lot hesitating, the men grabbed his hand and his, uh, the hand of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as he had brought them out, one, one said, flee for your life, don't look back, don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains where you'll be swept away. And then verse 24, we pick up again, and it says, the next thing that happens, the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all of those that lived in the cities. And early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked toward the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land of the plain, and he saw this dense smoke rising from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought out Lot, or brought Lot out of the catastrophe, and that he overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So Lot and his daughters and wife, up to a point, was delivered because of Abraham's prayers because of the righteousness of Abraham, because the Bible tells us in Peter that Lot's righteous soul was vexed because of the, the city that he lived in. So I want to just talk about this, what the Bible says about men having sex with men. It's a tough subject, and I know that um, all of us have some type of a relationship. I mean, most of us know someone that is in a gay lifestyle, homosexual or lesbian lifestyle, uh, you know, I hope that you're extending love to that person because we're going to find out in just a moment when Bible, the Bible talks about homosexuality that that sin is on the same, you know, don't set yourself on a higher level just because you're a heterosexual sinner. That doesn't make you any better. The Bible tells us that we are all on the same level playing field and we should not pretend with some kind of pious attitude just because you're a heterosexual sinner that you are better than a homosexual sinner. The Bible says that sin is sin in the eyes of God and that he will punish all sin, but he's also the same God that extends righteousness and grace and mercy to all sinners. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. All right, so in Leviticus chapter 18... This is where, you know, we, you know where this, what, this is what by, the Bible says that God's feelings are toward, you know, sexual sin. And he talks about men having sex with women uh, outside of marriage, men having sex with their sister or with their mother or all of these types. And then he gets down to verse, uh, uh, this chapter 18, Leviticus, then it says, do not have sexual relationships with a man as one does with a woman because that is detestable to the Lord. And then I know that there are those that would say, yeah, but that's Old Testament. And even quoting Romans chapter 6, verse 14, it says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And we would say that, yeah, we're not under law, you know, and that was an Old Testament law, so we're not under that. And so what about, you know, the eating of, you know, shellfish and lobster and shrimp and all of those things? You know, you know we, it says that in the Old Testament, and you have grace in the New Testament, you know, if it says it in the Old Testament and repeats it in the New Testament, then we understand that this is the heart of God. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says, We know 
that the law, speaking about, you know, this is an Old Testament law, homosexuality was wrong in the Old Testament, but love and grace covers it in the New Testament. Let's just see what the New Testament says. It says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels. The law is not made for the righteous. It says, not made, or the, it says it's made for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, those who kill their fathers and their, murder, or their mothers and murderers, and sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, for liars and perjurers. That's in 1 Timothy. And then we get to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous, let me just stop there for a second and just say, how do we become righteous? How do you and I become righteous? Do we become, become righteous by attending church, by reading the Bible, by saying a lot of prayers, by doing good? Is that how we become righteous? No. The Bible says that he, speaking about Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us. This is called the great exchange. He who knew no sin, the sinful man or sinless man, Jesus, without sin in his life, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through him. We obtain our righteousness because of what Jesus did. Because, absolutely because of what he did. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers nor homosexuals or sodomites or thieves or covetous or drunkards or revilers, that's those that would criticize in a hostile, abusive way, spreading negative information, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is what I love about this verse. Because he's writing to this church at Corinth. He said that some of you at one time, you were adulterers and you were idolaters. Adulterers is having sex with another man's uh, husband or another man's, well, excuse me, not another man's husband. All right, all right, another man's wife another wife's husband, all right? Clarify that. Okay, all right, all right. That's adulterers. Idolaters is worshiping, the worshiping of idols. And so he says that, you know, that some of you used to be that. Some of you used to be adulterers. Some of you used to be fornicators. Some of you used to be idolaters. Some of you used to be sodomites. Some of you used to be homosexuals, but you're not that way anymore because of what God has done in your life. There is a power that comes into our life that brings change into our life, and we can't change by ourselves, guys. I know you may want to try to change. I, I tried to do it myself. I, tried, I didn't want to be a drunk anymore. I didn't want to do drugs anymore. I promised myself that I would quit, but I had no power in my I had good intentions, but I had no power in myself to overcome those sinful areas in my life, just like you don't today. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus in our life. He says, and as such, some of you were, or such as some of you were, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And then the Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, he says, be renewed. And this is the beginning of the healing process. I love that story about R.A. Dickey, you know, he was just thinking about it. It was 20-some-odd years. I think he said 24 years. He couldn't tell anyone. And this is one of the, I mean, it's just like one of the tools of the enemy that the enemy use, uses against us in these areas in our life that you, you cannot tell anybody. This secret is so deep and so dark that, you know, you feel like your damaged goods, 
you feel like, you know, you're worthless to the world. You feel like so dirty and, you know, inside. And I was listening to one of the testimonies of one of these young women who said that after she was abused, she went and got in a bathtub and tried to scrub away the guilt and the shame. And she said that she washed so hard with the soap and, and with, the, with the wash rag that, you know, that she actually irritated her skin, trying to wash away the stain. But I'm going to tell you that nothing can take away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, the Bible says that, you know, th there's something you can't wash away guilt and shame with soap and water. You need the precious cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And that is worth of a hearty, worthy of a hearty amen right there. So, so guys, let me just tell you what comes with this. You know, we, you know, we, we and, and, you know, if you're a victim here today, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I want you to hear this because I, I believe that God is in the business of setting captive free. And we mentioned in the, in the video earlier um, in our announcements that we have this support group for women that they meet at t on Tuesday nights. And I think they, they had about 11 uh, women that were there last week on a Tuesday night uh, at 6.30. I believe it's when you guys meet. So the men are going to meet on Thursday nights at 6.30. We're going to just try this for a couple of weeks and, you know, just try to walk some of you through this. But you're going to find out in just a moment the key to this. Do not allow the enemy to keep you in these chains and in darkness any longer that Jesus wants to set you free. But the key is exposing these, these, these works of darkness. But listen to this. These are some of the symptoms and some of the, the lifestyle that people live that have been sexually abused, raped, or, or through incest, both men and women uh, feeling anxiety and depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, flashbacks, eating disorder, avoiding people or places that remind you of the, the assault or the abuse, concerns or questions about your sexual orientation, fear of the worst happening, having a sense of a shortened future, feeling, in the case of a man, feeling less like less of a man, or that you no longer have control over your own body, feeling on the edge, being unable to relax and having, having a difficult sleeping, sense of blame or, blame or shame over not being able to stop the assault or the abuse, uh, withdrawal from relationships and friendships, an increased sense of isolation, worrying about disclosing for fear of judgment or disbelief. And I heard the testimony just recently of a young man who was actually the abuser in this case. And for 40-some-odd years, thinking, you know, should I talk about it? Uh, you know, should I approach this person that I victimized? And, you know, maybe, you know, just hoping and praying. And this person had actually turned the corner and become a Christian, but wondering how to deal with the past. Do I go back and uh, into a person's life that, you know, some 40 years later, how do I deal with this? And, and, and every day thinking that, you know, perhaps I'm going to get busted today. Somebody's going to come out with the truth and I'm going to be exposed for who I am and hiding this, this shame in their life, just keeping this in a deep, dark secret, worrying about disclosing for fear of judgment. What would other people think about me if they knew that these are the things that I've done? And guys, I want to just tell you, we're all, we're all sinners here. Well, I, just look around. You've got a room full of sinners here, okay? 
We have a room full of sinners, and we've all been washed in the blood of Jesus. And he wants to forgive us all of our sins, and he wants to set us free. So sometimes perpetrators, especially adults who sexually abuse boys, will sometimes use these um, psychological phrases um, and try to convince them not to tell anybody. Don't talk about this. Don't tell. Don't tell. Don't tell this deep, dark secret. Victims are almost, this is from Christianity Today, it says victims are often traumatized for life, driven to drugs and alcohol and suicide. And that's exactly what this young man said when he found out that he was exposed. He said, you know, the first thought I had was to go and get my gun and blow my head off. He was so ashamed, so embarrassed, ridden with guilt and shame. In this article, Christianity Today, it says, part of why silence is so bad for us because we're not made to do trauma in isolation. Those in pain should be surrounded uh, with those uh, supports in their community, the way that they do with death or when any other tragic strikes. This community support is good for our brain and neurology. It's how we cope. And it says, goes on to say, unfortunately, most victims don't get the support. It says when victims aren't supported in their church, it deepens their trauma. That's what we're trying to do is create the support group for victims. So let me just quickly move to just uh, the, the next final two points. I'm going to wrap this up. But I, in, in doing that, I'm going to just speak about Josh McDowell. Some of you, many of you will remember Josh Mac, McDowell. Um, he had written a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict about Christianity. It says that he endured uh, this nightmare for years. As a young adult, he was finally able to break the chains of anger and uh, unforgiveness. It says, um, and McDowell has spoken to 25 million people, 26,000 talks. He's uh, been in 125 countries. But as he's doing all of these speaking engagements, his past, just like R.A. Dickey, begins to haunt him. And he's not really the, the, the man that God created him to be because of these deep, dark secrets. And he writes this book called Undaunted. It says that it took him a long time to tell his story. It says there was shame that seems to never go away. He said, I didn't think it was anybody else's business. Even though I had dealt with this years ago, I thought people would look at me differently if they knew, and I didn't want that. He says, he, growing up, he lived on a family farm in Michigan. The family was unstable. His father was an alcoholic and abusive toward his wife and children. The mother was so obese that she couldn't take care of the household alone, and she hired a local man to help with uh, cooking and cleaning. Wayne, this is the hired help, the man hired to help uh, McDowell's, uh, began to abuse uh, Josh McDowell when he was six years old. Wayne was into pornography. He said, he made me look at it with him. And as a child, I didn't really understand what it was, but I knew it made me feel bad. Like every abuser, Wayne threatened me about telling anyone. There's that thing, go into silence, go into darkness, keep this thing hidden so no one will know. He said that, uh, uh, he told me my parents would never believe me and that no one would believe me, and I told him so that I'd, I'd never, never told. 
He says, when McDowell was nine years old, he uh, worked up the courage. Now listen to this, guys. This is just hard to, to fathom. When he was nine years old, he worked up the courage to tell his mother about what Wayne was doing to him. She was so outraged that he would make such an accusation. She didn't believe him, said that he was lying and had made it up, and she made me go get a switch from a tree in our backyard, and she beat me until the point that I confessed that I was lying. It says McDowell's abuse continued until he was 13 years old and he was big enough to threaten or big enough to be a threat to Wayne. It says even after that, the abuse stopped, McDowell never told anyone. The, one of the first lines in his book is forgiveness is the only cure for sexual abuse victims. And when I say that, and I know that if you've been abused and you're hearing that for the first time, you may be thinking, I could never forgive. I could never forgive this. But forgiveness is not the same as condoning this terrible act that has happened to you. You're not condoning it. What you're simply doing is just saying, I choose to forgive. And I'm going to give you an incredible example of that in just a moment. But let me just tell you, there's two ways to get out of this, two ways to your freedom. Number one is that secret that you've been keeping for so long and you want to hold in this deep, dark place in your life. It says, McDowell, I think he kept the secret for 40 years. Ricky Allen kept the secret for 26 years. But the beginning of healing in our lives is when we expose this darkness. Now listen to the scripture. It says, at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light, uh, you are the light and the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Listen to that. Take no part. Don't be a part whether you have been the victim or victimized and someone has told you to keep this secret. Don't be a part of keeping that, those works of darkness, but rather instead expose that. Expose those works of darkness. In John chapter 3, it says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whosoever does what is true comes to the light. That's what the Lord is asking you to do today, to come to the light. The second part of uh, your healing process is forgiving one another. And this is a tough passage of Scripture right here, but I need to read it. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the church at Corinth, you have to understand, I mean, this church had all kind of sin going on in, in it. Remember, we read earlier about adultery and fornication and homosexuality and lying and thievery and, you know, drunkenness. All of that was happening in the church. This also was happening in that same church. He goes on to say, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not even tolerate. He said, not only should this not be going on in the church, this, not, this doesn't even happen in the world. He goes on, he says, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud about that. He said, you are proud about this. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man that has been doing this? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And then by the time you get to 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is reevaluating what had happened. And he goes on, he's talking about the same situation. He says, for such a one, speaking about this, this man that was put out of the fellowship, he says, this punishment by the majority of the church is enough. 
so you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow the kind of sorrow that leads to an individual wanting to put a gun to his head and take his head off because of this guilt and shame paul is saying it's okay you now that you've exposed the sin you can go back and deal with both the victim and uh, um, you know the the one that had caused the problem in the first place and extend forgiveness the problem in the church that sometimes are lenient or are the church acts in a way that is too lenient or too harsh there is a time to comfort one another there's also a time to confront one another and in this case paul was saying it's time you confronted now it's time to comfort the bible says that if you forgive other people when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their sin your father will not forgive you your sins and then uh, in matthew chapter 18 there's a story there about peter saying lord how many times shall i forgive my brother seven times he thought he was being generous and the lord says no peter you need to forgive your brother 70 times seven and then he goes on and he tells the story about a man that had a, a debt uh, that someone owed him 10,000 bags of gold. And the, the man that owed the debt went to him and said, you know, I'm sorry, I can't pay. Just be patient with me and I'll pay with you. I'll, I'll pay you. And so the, uh, the man that uh, had been owed the debt said, okay, I forgive you the debt. And then that same man went out, the man that had owed 10,000 bags of gold found somebody that owned him a hundred silver coins and he says give me that money or I'm gonna have you thrown in jail and the man said please you know have mercy on me you know I'll pay you when I can but it said that that man that had been forgiven the 10,000 bags of gold had that man arrested had him thrown into jail but when the word got back to the owner or the man that had the original debt, he said, you know, this guy that you just forgave the debt of 10,000 bags of gold, he just went and found somebody that owed him 100 silver coins and had him thrown in prison. And I'll pick up with the scripture. It says, the Lord called him in. This is the original Lord that had the debt of 10,000 bags of gold owed to him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should not you also have had mercy on your fellow servant, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord was angry and delivered him, listen to this, he delivered him to the tormentors until he should pay all that was due. So my heavenly Father will do to you also if you do not each of you forgive your brother from your heart. Many of you have seen that movie called Unbroken about the Japanese prison camp and Louis Zamperini. Uh, Louis Zamperini was in 1936. He was a, ran a race, Olympic champion in 1936. The war breaks out against Japan. He's in a, a plane. He's shot down in the Pacific. I think he was uh, floating in a raft. There was about three of them. One of the men died, but he was picked up by a Japanese boat and taken to a Japanese prisoner of war camp, POW camp. And in that POW camp, there was a commander, the commander of that camp, his name was the bird. And his, his mindset was that he was gonna break everyone that came in there, every American soldier, but he had a particular hatred for Louis 
because he was a, an Olympic champion and just had it out for the guy, beating and torture and all kind of things that I can't even mention here, you know, abuse, physical abuse to this man. And it went on and on. Finally, the war is over and uh, the bird was on the top 40 list of war criminals. Finally, he was arrested, sent to trial, put in prison. But Zamperini, Louis is back in Los Angeles and even though he's 5,500 miles away, he is thinking about all of the sort of the torture, the abuse that he went through that was inflicted upon him by the man called the bird. And he was thinking about the ways, dreaming about the ways that he could get, ven get vengeful or revenge on this individual, the bird, this commander of the prison camp. And he was tormented, just like we just read in Matthew chapter 18 about being tormented. He was tormented in his mind daily because of this. And at one night he was having a dream, and in his dream he actually caught up with the bird. And he has his hands around his neck, and he's squeezing the life out of the bird in his dream. And he wakes up to find that he's strangling his wife actually strangling his wife on top of his wife strangling the the life out of his wife shortly after that billy graham came to los angeles in a crusade and louis gets saved and right after he gets saved he thought the one thing i want to do is i'm going to make that 5500 mile journey back to japan and i'm going to meet this guy face to face and those other you know uh, prison guards that tortured me and i'm going to forgive them because that's what the word says. And he makes that trip and he sees those that had been where he had been the prisoner and they had been the guards. Now the tables had turned. They were in the very prison. Some of them were in the very prison that Louis was in, had been in. And he was going to them one by one saying how he chose to forgive them because of what Jesus Christ had done in his life. And they get word to the guard called the bird. And he says, I don't want his forgiveness. I don't want to see him. I don't want anything to do with the man. And Louis could have been bitter, upset, mad. You know what, the, what his story is? Is that it was off of him. And it said from that day forward, he never had another nightmare. He was free. He was free. That's what you and I need to be, guys. We need to be free. So I'm going to pray for you this morning. I'm going to pray for those that have been the victims of incest and rape and sexual abuse. And I just want you, with just by faith, just to simply, in your heart and your mind, just say, Lord, I don't want to be haunted by these memories, these suppressed memories. I choose to release this individual to you, Lord. I choose to forgive, Father. I commit all anger and vengeance and revenge into your hands, Lord. I choose to pray for these individuals that have hurt me. The, the Word of God says, bless those and pray for those that despitefully use you and have persecuted you. Lord, based on your word, I choose to release them. Now I release them to you, Father, and I choose as far as I can on my part, Father, I choose to forgive. 
I choose to forgive them for what they've done to me, the hurt that they've brought to me. I choose to forgive. And then maybe there's someone here that you were the problem. You were the one that caused these problems in an individual's life. And you just simply say, Lord, I know my sin and it haunts me. It's daily before me. And I'm asking you, Father, did you wash me in the blood of your son, Jesus? That you would forgive me of my sins, Lord. God, that you would heal these individuals that I've hurt, that I've brought harm to. God, that you would heal them and release them and set these captives free. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And God's people said, amen, let's just lift up a shout of God. Now shout of praise to our God. Come on, stand up. Come on, come on, stand up. only Jesus. Our mess, our problems, our trials, our tribu tribulation, 
our circumstances, God. They're so big, only you can fix it, God. They're so big, only you can fix it. But Lord, we just invite you to come into our mess and fix it. Fix us, Lord. Fix our brokenness, our hurts. Set us free, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we want to just thank you for our time together. Ask your blessing on our food and our fellowship that would follow after this service. Pray your blessing to be upon your people. God, I pray that you would be just a constant reminder that ever-present help in a time of need, Lord, that whisper in the dark, Lord God, that only you can do what you can do, Father. Whisper, set the captives free, heal the brokenness. In Jesus' name we pray. God bless you guys. Love you. Just want to encourage you that you know, we're going to have our church picnic. Remember Tuesday night, Thursday night, women on Tuesday night, men on Thursday night. I encourage you. It's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. Tell somebody. Tell somebody. God bless you guys. Love you.